This is Jeff Billard from Sonic Echo, and you're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. The Leviathan Chronicles Season 3 The story thus far. A deadly showdown has taken place in New York City. The team, led by Sension and Jason Sterling, entered a secret vault contained within the Pierpont Morgan Library and Museum to obtain a tracking amplifier that boosted the psychic powers of Rebecca Von Alt. But when their presence within the museum was detected, the New York City Police Department forcefully descended upon their location. Having no other way to escape, Sension radioed for Anjali, his pilot and confidant, to extract his team using the Moonblade, a unique quad-tilt rotor aircraft. But McCall and Orsall and her Leviathan strike force were also in urgent pursuit. After tracker Gregor Raginsky detected the awakening of Rebecca Von Alt, otherwise known as the Countess, in New York, McCallan ordered the team to descend upon Manhattan. Anton enlisted the services of a former Rebellion member, Henderson Riverstone, to rendezvous with the strike force off the coast of Hawaii to transport them to New York City using his highly modified nuclear-powered seaplane. After a desperate aerial battle over the Manhattan skyline, McAllen and her strike force were able to bring down the Moonblade and acquire a Starstone fragment that was contained within the tracking amplifier, but the battle came at a tragic cost. Gregor Oginski was killed as Sension, Rebecca Von Alt, Whit Roberts and Jason Sterling escaped using a submarine piloted by Alexander. McAllen and her strike force are now headed back to Leviathan in possession of the coveted Starstone fragment that they hope will save their city. And now, Chapter 41, Awakening. The Central African Republic. A Bell Ranger 212 helicopter flew a mere hundred feet over the treetops of the Congo rainforest. The ebony-skinned pilot wore a tattered straw cowboy hat with Ray-Ban aviator sunglasses, holding an unlit marble in his lips while his unusual medley of passengers sat in the back. Put down should be over that next ridge. The riverbed should be pretty low this time of year. What do you think, Sension? Sension stared out the open hatch of the helicopter wordlessly. His close friend Alexander sat in the front beside the pilot, with Whit Roberts and Rebecca Von Out sitting next to him. Jason Stur- Sterling remained alone, his ever-widening frame taking up most of the last row of the aircraft. Sterling remained wordless ever since their chopper departed from Bangui, the capital of the CAR. Sension noticed several times that the scarlet-skinned man's lips would move swiftly despite the fact that no words left his mouth. Rebecca's words passed through him without recognition or response. Sension's mind was still trapped in New York City with the one team member he was forced to leave behind. Anjali, I'm so sorry. You're never supposed to pay for my mistakes. I'm so sorry. Sension! The rainy season starts in a few weeks, so we should be fine by the riverbed. Our contact in Bangui says there's been no sign of rebel activity in this region, so the put-down should be secure. Make sure the pilot confirms the landing beacon frequency before he takes off again. We really don't want to get stuck here. The helicopter streaked over the lush green canopy of the Zangadoki National Park, deep in the Congo Basin. The roaring aircraft set off the loud alarms of grey parrots, red howler monkeys and jungle cicadas. 
The bell ranger tucked its nose slightly upward, bringing its forward momentum to a halt before gently descending upon a muddy clearing on the banks of the Sanga River. Last stop. Everybody out. Wit and Rebecca jumped out the bell ranger, keeping their heads low as they ran to the dark tree line beside the clearing. Jason Sterling moved slower, and Sension noted the depth of his footsteps in the mud as he exited. Wit, Sension, and Rebecca reached into the back of the bell ranger to unload several metallic boxes with leather straps fastening them. Jason Sterling stood near the edge of the forest looking into the thick darkness that lay within. Alexander stepped outside the helicopter and stood close to Sension. So this is it, Sension. You're marching into the heart of darkness to save us all. Let me assure you that I'm open to hearing other suggestions. I despise the jungle. Then come back with me on the chopper and forget all of it. Do you have a better idea, Alex? A better way to make sure that everyone in the Rebellion can continue to live? If I can find the aliens, then I might be able to gain control of the Starstone supply to Earth. A Starstone won't help you if you can't commune with it. You'll still be reliant on Evangeline. If these aliens were able to modify Evangeline's DNA to accept Interface a thousand years ago, then they can damn well do it again to mine. You're taking a lot of risk. I'm not sure I see the alternative. McCallum is now aligned with Evangeline, and even Anton, fucking traitor. Anyway, you'll go back in the helicopter, wait for our extraction signal from Bangui. Done. I'll secure air support for the extraction and make sure one of those chopper jockeys doesn't try to kidnap you for the benefit of the LRA rebels. <sighs> Not sure who would pay the ransom if they did. I would, old friend. What are you going to do about them? Alexander gestured to Whit Roberts and Jason Sterling. Bide my time, for now. I want to see the aliens with my own eyes before I take any action against them. Or before those black door vermin make a move against you. They've wanted to kill you for years. They'll seize the chance the moment they have what they want. I'll just have to make sure they don't get their chance. <laughs> well, be safe, Dr. Livingston. <laughs> you too, Stanley. Sension and Alex shook hands tightly before Alex reboarded the Bell Ranger helicopter that lifted off over the jungle canopy and banked right to disappear behind the rolling hills of the Congo River Basin. Rebecca approached Sension. <laughs> Are you sure they're coming back? Would you? <laughs> Probably not. I think I'd rather go back to my civilian life. My little world of blissful ignorance, being a librarian and not knowing any of this existed. Is that true? Is that really what you'd want? No, no, that's not true. I want to be here, fighting for a cause, alongside you. I wish I could be a more comforting brand of company. I'm more worried about the other company we're keeping. Have you thought about what use Black Door will have for us once we found the aliens? Look on the bright side. They're not really Black Door anymore. Stop it. This is no time to be glib. We're in the middle of the African jungle with two sociopaths who have killed a countless number of immortals. I'm sorry. You're right, Rebecca. But look, the way I see it, they'll still need you and I to organize an extraction. The bigger question is, what use do we have for them? How's your signal strength? It's growing. I'm not getting much movement, so either the aliens are confined to one location or or they're injured. Are their life signs weakening? Strengthening. The aliens know we're here, Sension. Good. If they know about our presence and haven't moved, that means they're probably not going to. The worst thing would be if we lost them. Rebecca looked over her shoulder and could see Jason Sterling lifting up a small tree that had fallen near the clearing, breaking off branches a foot thick for firewood. I'm not sure that would be the worst thing. How about heading? Are you still getting a clear read? For sure. Frankly, it amazes me that none of you can feel this throbbing energy. It's coming from the south. Another 30-mile trek, I guess, through the rainforest. It won't be easy. It never is. Gentlemen, we're going to set up camp over here, in the clearing beyond the riverbed. Bring over that firewood and let's set up motion detectors. 
Only 30 minutes had passed before each member of the team felt exhausted by the oppressive level of humidity that hung over the group like an immovable warm cloud. For a split second, Senchen considered the cooling waters of the Sangha River, but remembered that crocodile infestation was rampant. Whit Roberts approached Senchen, wiping his damp brow from the bandana he wore around his neck. Okay, Senchen. I've got sensors laid out every 20 yards, and we should have enough firewood to get us through the night. Good job. The temperature is going to be falling fast soon. I'm going to set up a port of shelters next, but um, can I ask you an odd question, Whit? Go ahead. How is your boss going to handle the humidity level? I noticed that Right he... now, he's wrapped in moisture-wicking synthetic fabric. He said the heat level actually is making the humidity more tolerable. When we break camp tomorrow, I think I have something that will help. In the meantime, I could use a hand with the rest of these crates. Senshin and Wit opened one of the metal crates and removed four small gray spheres, each slightly larger than a spare tire. Senshin arranged them in the light grass of the clearing in a square pattern, keeping the campfire in the middle of them. Stand back, everyone. Senshin removed a small data pad from his pocket, and after a quick series of taps, each of the spheres hissed loudly as they grew rapidly in size. It was like watching four balloons slowly inflate. Each of the structures was constructed of a silverish fabric that retained the segmented texture of a soccer ball. Within moments, four structures were erected in the shape of half spheres that stood approximately eight feet tall. These will be our shelters for the evening. Upon approaching the porter shelters, the entrance door had the same resistance as opening a refrigerator, which revealed a small antechamber that functioned as an airlock where the second door could be opened, thus allowing access to the small inner chamber for sleeping. A small motor no bigger than a man's fist maintained the chamber pressure, keeping the structure upright and rigidly inflated. Home sweet home. Huh, I haven't slept in one of these since the Hudson Bay incident. <sighs> Don't remind me. Well done, Senshin. I have to say, you really know how to take care of your people. Senshin stared back at Jason Sterling, who returned the glare. That's right. I'll do whatever it takes to protect them. No matter what. I hope the Seraxians we're trying to rescue will enjoy that same level of devotion. Are you trying to imply something? Uh, come on, guys. The temperature is starting to drop. We need to get some more wood on the fire. Three hours later, Senshin, Whit, Rebecca, and Jason Sterling sat in a rough circle in front of a crackling fire of Alstonia and mahogany branches. The sun had almost completed setting, giving the river valley a hazy, ethereal quality. As the half-light of dusk grew the shadows into long, wicked shapes as the nocturnal creatures of the jungle awoke, Rebecca passed out packets of MREs, along with mugs of hot water with lemon. I gotta say, these things aren't half bad. I didn't think the army made anything this edible. Depends on which army. What do you mean? These ones are French. You see, different countries have different MREs for their soldiers. My preference is for the French or South Korean army rations. A little kimchi or ham-fried rice. Yeah, the, uh, the venison pate is a nice touch. Senshin loves the Australian or German ones. Mm. What can I say? I like liverwurst and rye bread. <laughs> Gross. Ugh. Yuck. <laughs> no thank you. Hey. The Ukrainian ones have herring soaked in garlic oil. Oh, no way. Just thinking about the smell. <laughs> God, listen to us complain. But Senshin, remember what they were like 20 years ago? Oh, those MREs where everything either tasted like spam or tang? Oh, but remember the slop they served the soldiers in World War II? Oh, those poor men. I know, I know. Remember that one time in Stalingrad? Wit, did I hear you correctly, that you set up a perimeter of motion detectors around our camp? I did. You said every 20 yards? Yeah. 
If you'll excuse me, I think I'd sleep better if they were set up for every ten yards. Me too. Senshin rose from the small log he was sitting on and retreated to the dark edge of the camp perimeter, carrying a duffel bag of additional sensors. With the camp soon surrounded with blinking blue dots that pierced the darkness, he returned to the fire to join the rest of the team. Rebecca handed him another mug of hot water and lemon. Thank you, Senshin. I didn't survive the last few centuries just to end up as a chew toy for a jungle panther. Me neither. Whip poked the subsiding fire with a long stick he held in his hand. So, what is it like? What's what like? Being immortal. What does it feel like? It doesn't feel any different. Not physically, if that's what you mean. Your body is just more capable. And for me, I feel like my mind can stretch further. I can remember things better and clearer. That's not what I mean. You're asking if we still feel human. Yeah, I guess. Rebecca? I guess I... I feel connected to humanity, but not human myself. I know that whatever problem I see, whatever situation I face involving conflict, the answer is usually time. Nothing will ever stay the same. Things are always changing and evolving, and people will always die. Except me. At first, you don't even notice it. I mean, at least I didn't. You're required to stay within Leviathan for your first 40 to 50 years. Enough time to get acquainted with all the citizenry and establish your role within your designated social group. And enough time for everyone you've known on the surface to pass away. Or forget about you entirely. It's like being forced to become reborn again. It's a little bit of a psychological ploy, but an effective one. Because you know that anyone you meet on the surface, any relationship you have will just be temporary. I mean, sometimes you just just get your fill of humanity. I mean, all their problems are about them. Never seeing the big picture, never looking beyond their own homes or borders or prejudices to see that- see that we all share so much more in common as human beings. And you go through phases, don't you? Times where you just want to stay at your flat in Mexico City or Hong Kong or Belgrade and talk to every street vendor, every artist, every mayor and- And then you just get fed up. Everything seems like the same story over and over again. The arrogance and the ignorance of youth, the myopic vision and prejudices of the old, everyone repeating the same mistakes again and again. You just want to head back to Leviathan and be with others like you. Where everything makes sense. Everyone has the same time frame where you can finally relax because you know you're safe. Because no matter what happens... No matter how much destruction or calamity takes place on Earth, no matter how bad it gets... We know we'll always be safe in Leviathan. Nothing on the surface can affect us within the Great Cavern. And there's a lot of security to that. You know if you... Suddenly, Senshin stopped speaking and stared out beyond the campfire towards the jungle which had grown eerily silent. What? What is it? Senshin squinted his eyes and saw the jungle ground shimmer and shift. It appeared to move back and forth slightly and undulate in waves. It was as if the ground itself were alive. Ow! Whip slapped the side of his leg hard before Rebecca cried out. Senshin's hand frantically shook as he raced to activate his headlamp. Standing on top of the log, he saw one of the most fearsome, destructive forces in nature. Ants! Army ants are attacking! Get in the shelters now! Hurry! For the goddess's sake, hurry! A mammoth rolling wave of red army ants swarmed into the camp and instantly covered every surface they could find. Sentin looked down and saw his team mug was now overflowing with army ants, and several had pulled up his arm and scurried across his shoulders and into his ears. At a half-inch in length, each carnivorous army ant featured a large set of mandibles used for biting, tearing off flesh and injecting painful venom into its prey. As one of the most destructive eating machines in nature, a swarm of ants could devour a small pig or goat within two hours, leaving little of the animal. Ow, son of a bitch! 
Ascension ran to his inflated shelter, as did Wit and Rebecca. He hurried to open the sealed door to his chamber, but not before spying Jason Sterling. Sterling stood directly in the middle of the marauding swarm as the ants hurried around him, invading every crevice, every crate, every bag and every inch of the camp, eating and destroying anything they could. But none of the ants seemed to rise much further than the mere shoes Sterling wore. Sterling stood shirtless, watching with fascination as not a single ant touched his skin. It's amazing what an army of ants can do. It's all the power of sacrifice. Before Sension could respond, an army ant dashed across his eyelid, causing Sension to violently strike his own face before tearing into his shelter and stripping off all his clothes in the airlock. He entered the interior chamber naked and urgently scanned his body for more of the ants. He activated every interior light to find and kill the blindingly fast ants. After killing all the ants he could see, and examining the welts and bloody cuts across his naked body, Sension looked up at the domed ceiling of his shelter, and watched wave upon wave of the ant swarm cascade over the top of it, making the interior seem far darker. Please, please let these shelters hold. The ants can find even the smallest leak. They can find even the smallest hole. In the distance, he could hear shouts coming from Wit and Rebecca as they repeated the same process in their own shelters, but still... Nothing from Sterling. The ants, they weren't even biting him. They weren't even touching him. What is he becoming? I'm fearing it'll be harder to kill him than I imagined. He seems to be growing with purpose. But whose? And why? Daybreak finally arrived at the campsite, and Sension and his team carefully exited their shelters, taking time to kill the remaining army ants they walked out to the remains of the smoldering campfire. My God. Rebecca picked up the backpack she had dropped in the frenzy. The sturdy canvas looked gauzy now and full of rips and holes as if someone had applied a shotgun blast to it at close range. <sighs> Looks like they got most of the food. How long a trip did you say we had ahead of us? Based on what Rebecca's sensing, we probably have another three-day trek ahead of us through the rainforest and jungle. Without packs, we won't be able to carry the shelters. We weren't going to be using the shelters anyway. Not in the jungle. What do you mean? Sension approached the last crate that had remained sealed and thus impervious to the onslaught of the ants. He unfastened the latches and opened the crate to reveal packages of the same silverish material that the porter shelters had been constructed from. Good. Good. They survived. They didn't get in. What are those? Environmental suits. They're what we're going to be wearing for the next three days in the jungle. They're what's going to let us survive in the jungle. It's time to suit up. The Zephyr shuttle glided downwards through the silent darkness of the Marianas Trench. It had been radioed ahead that its strike force's mission had been a success, but the mood inside the ship was somber and quiet. While the team was returning with a Starstone, it was not returning with one of its crew members, Gregor Raginsky, who had been killed by Alexander on the shoreline of the Hudson River. Soon, the hazy silhouette of the great cathedral spires rose up through the oceanic haze, and the ship descended past the three-story underwater cathedral entrance that was carved into the trench wall. Zephyr 6, this is Darkwater Command. You are cleared for final approach and mooring through Dock Tube H. Welcome home, Strike Force. 
The Zephyr docked at its designated slip in Leviathan, completing its journey through several sets of airlocks. Once moored, McAllen stepped out of the Zephyr and walked down the loading steps onto the West Hangar Bay. Over half the docking bays were now shrouded in darkness in order to save power that was becoming an increasingly limited supply in Leviathan. Looks like we didn't return a moment too soon. Keitha, let's get a med pod and lev truck over here to help us with the Starstone. Let's get it over to Evangeline's hospital room right away. I'm on it. Hey, McAllen! McAllen! At the end of the docking bay, a slender woman with distressed leather pants and studded bracelets leaned against the side of one of the loading mechs. Lorelei! Come here, rock star. McAllen ran over to embrace Lorelei, the artist who, along with her lover, Renaissance painter Maestro Viberucci, was responsible for designing the sky that shone over Leviathan. Welcome home, McAllen. Lorelei. Oh. Hey, hey there. I've got you. You're safe now. Shh. I'm sorry. Sorry? For what? You did it, didn't you? You came back with a starstone. We we did it, Lorelai. We found one. It wasn't... I wish... I wish it could have happened a different way. But you did it. Why are you so sad? What happened to you up there? We, um... We lost Gregor. Oh. Uh, I'm... I'm so sorry, McAllen. Tell me, how are things here? I won't lie, things got a bit worse. The power fluctuation started increasing, and we had a pretty severe cave-in near the Genesis Zone. But on the bright side, some of the power around the pressure shield has been stabilized by the new programmers that they brought down from the surface. What about Evangeline? Any change in her condition? Nothing yet. Come on, I'll walk with you to the med tower. McAllen and Lorelei quickly walked to the green glass entrance of the med tower that stood near the great cathedral at one end of Tweedle Boulevard. You're going upstairs. I have to head back to the illustration matrix at the studio. I have something very special planned for your triumphant return. You should stop by later. You look like you could use a drink. Probably more than one. Good luck, McAllen. Thank you, Lorelei. Thank you for everything. McAllen turned and headed into the med tower. After taking an elevator to the top floor, McAllen pushed open the door to Evangeline's hospital room to find her laying on crisp white sheets encased in a long half-cylinder. The leader of Leviathan looked peaceful with her auburn hair, darker than McAllen remembered, gently gathered in a pale ivory ribbon over her right shoulder. McAllen paused and placed her hand on top of Evangeline's, which felt cool to the touch. A small tear formed in McAllen's eye, and she turned to look out the large window. True to her word, Lorelei spared no expense in her lavish detail of the dramatic cavern sky, celebrating McAllen's return and success in finding a starstone. The artificial sun shone a clear bright yellow, casting reflections off the fading clouds that were slowly moving off the sky. Flocks of holographic doves circled around the perimeter of the cavern, but as much as the view transfixed her, nothing prepared her for the surprise that stood behind her. Well, you certainly know how to make a dramatic entrance. Harlequin! I thought you were... were... Yes, yes. Rumors of my demise were greatly exaggerated. I decided to take a little saunter along the bottom of the ocean floor to observe the latest developments in sea slug evolution. Well, seriously, it's good to see you, Harlequin. I'm so sorry Evangeline doubted you. I know it was... Bennu, yes. It's comforting to know that his particular breed of vermin is now extinct. He almost succeeded in killing the one person he probably ever loved. How is she? Dr. Link says there's been no change. Her coma is still intractable. Well, I'm gonna see if I can change that. And just as she said it, Under Chief Keitha Watson, Robertson, and two other members of the Darkwater Force, along with Dr. Nora Link, entered the hospital room, pushing a maglev gurney with the starstone fragment that McAllen had found in New York City. They pushed it alongside Evangeline, and the room fell silent as all eyes turned to McAllen. As you all know, 
I'm now going to try to heal and revive Evangeline using the Starstone. I've never done this before, so Dr. Link, I'd, I'd like you to stand close by to monitor any change in her lady's condition. Whatever happens... Whatever happens, I believe in you. So do I. So do I. The doctor nodded to McAllen as she placed her hand upon Evangeline's head. McAllen then held out her other hand and allowed it to fall upon the long, thin starstone. She looked at the dull grey surface and waited to feel the pulse of cosmic energy to surge through her body. But nothing of the sort was now evident. The starstone felt dead. I'm sorry, I, I don't feel... Anything. Maybe give it more time. No, I mean, there's no communion. It's not reacting to me like the other times. It. McAllen's voice trailed off and a dark pallor fell across the room. She could feel eyes burning into her as she stared at the floor in Evangeline's limp body. Finally, Dr. Link turned to McAllen. McAllen, from what we know about Starstones, they seem to respond to intention. You're a doctor, McAllen. Think of Evangeline as your patient. These are her charts. Fix her. Heal her, McAllen. McAllen laid hands on the Starstone again, and this time placed just her fingertips on the side of Evangeline's head. She closed her eyes and concentrated intensely. Think, McAllen, think. Imagine the injury. Visualize her brain. Think of the cerebral cortex. Send energy through the thalamus. I need to link the acetylcholine-producing neurons. Hunt for the severed synapses. Connect them. Link the dendrites and activate the axon terminals to send neurotransmitters through her, sending them to the activating the system and her brain stem. Take her body temperature down. Cool the swelling in the sidereally. Widen the capillaries. Restore blood flow. Yes, I can feel you, Angeline. Come back to me. Come on. Flecks of azure blue began to glow intensely within the starstone McCallum was grasping. Every person in the room could sense a low vibration penetrate their skin as every immortal cell in their bodies basked in the healing radiation of the starstone energy. McCallum continued to visualize every nuance of her patient's brain and injuries. Her thoughts continued to accelerate as her mind raced with microscopic levels of cellular detail in Evangeline's body. Feel the torn meninges membrane around the temporal lobe and push the cerebrospinal fluid back into the Red plexus and through the central canal of the spinal cord. Just a little bit more. There! A spark! Yes! I can sense you coming back. Yes! Come on, Evangeline. Fight! Fight for me! And then it happened. A twitch. The smallest flex of Evangeline's index finger. It stopped, but then a moment later it was followed by a curling of her toes. Her wrist twisted ever so slightly, and her chest heaved with the labored effort of a deep, full breath. Her eyelids fluttered, then opened. McCallan. You have been listening to Season 3 of The Leviathan Chronicles, written and created by Christoph Lepupka. Executive produced by Robin Shaw. Produced and musical composition by Luke Allen. Directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For more information and news, visit our website at leviathanchronicles.com or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. Hi. 
This is Christoph Laputka, and I want to thank you for listening to Season 3 of the Leviathan Chronicles. I hope you've been enjoying our most action-packed season yet, because we want to keep growing the Leviathan universe with spin-off stories and future seasons. But we need your help. That's why I'm asking you to check out our first-ever Kickstarter campaign by going to leviathanchronicles.com kickstarter, or just clicking on the link in our show notes. There, we have many levels of support, as well as some really amazing rewards. One of our favorite characters is Salty Squid bartender Angus McKay. He really appreciates your support, and one of the rewards we're offering is a limited edition recipe book for Angus's favorite Leviathan cocktails that we found in an old corner of the squid. You can find cool items like that and much more on Kickstarter by going to leviathanchronicles.com kickstarter. We can't wait to get started on creating more audio dramas like Leviathan. Your help really does ensure that future projects will have the resources they need to make it from our headphones to yours. Thank you again for listening to C Season three, and thank you for checking out our Kickstarter campaign. I'll see you guys real soon. Leviathan Audio Production. You can listen to classical and brand new audio dramas through the Mutual Audio Network. Subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or iHeartRadio today. There's eight different podcasts, one for each day of the week and genre, and the Mutual Audio Network broadcast feed so you don't miss a day of your favorite shows. Subscribe to Mutual Audio tonight. Good night.